God, we come now to your word. Your word is truth, you tell us. Father, I pray that we would, Lord, uh, that I would, first of all, you would be with me as I preach. Lord, may I rightly divide your word of truth. And Father, may my preaching be worship to you. Father God, I pray that this congregation would take listening to your word seriously this morning. Lord, Father, may, may I not mess it up, but Father, may they sit and take pains to listen to the words of life, as Peter called them. And Father, I pray that it would mean blessing for our lives, and it would mean obedience to you and service to you and worship to you, our great God. May we leave here changed. And may that be proven by a week of change. And so on and so on. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Start off with a question this morning. Do you know anyone who is happy all the time? Do you know a person who is happy 24-7? Thank hard. Now, I know people that smile all the time, but that doesn't mean they're happy all the time. And I know people who laugh a lot, but that doesn't mean that they're happy all the time. I think if we are honest, if we are serious for a moment, that we don't know anybody who's happy 24-7. We don't know anybody, not any person on this earth that we know who is happy all the time. Now, if I base my answer on how we all come across to one another on a Sunday morning, I might be tempted to think that there are quite a few people who are happy all the time. You know, but Sunday morning is a lot safer a time and a place than most other times and places in our week, don't you think? Now, um, instead, what, what if we were allowed to look into our lives or our homes about 30 minutes before we got to church. Would that give a clearer picture to us if anybody really is happy all the time in this world? I think, you know, I actually think if we were allowed to look into our homes, maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour before we came to church, that would probably uh, paint a, an impeccably clear picture that we're not happy all the time. No, you can't watch Bob the Builder. We're going to church to learn about Jesus now. Something like that may take place. Not my house, of course, but yours, perhaps. <laughs> Just playing. We're not happy all the time. And why is that? Why, why is there... Why, why are we not happy all the time? Because of sin. We're not happy all the time because of sin. Sin leads us to make choices that steal our happiness instead of promote our happiness. Sin leads us to things that do not have the capacity to satisfy us. And we end up feeling depressed or anxious or angry, bitter or fearful. But sin can't touch God. Sin can't touch God. Sin can't uh, lead God to make choices that steal ha his happiness. Uh, God always chooses what is going to keep him perfectly happy. He chooses himself. 
God always chooses what is going to make him perfectly happy. He chooses himself. He is what is most wonderful and glorious in the universe. And every decision he makes leads himself right back to him. And without the hindrance of sin that we experience every day. God is a happy God. I should be hearing hallelujahs. God is a happy God. There you go. As we've seen in uh, 1 Timothy 1.11, Paul refers to the glorious gospel of the blessed or happy God. The glorious gospel of the happy God. He is a perfectly happy God. And the reason why this is good news for you and me is because God wants to share that happiness with us. And as the God who is perfectly happy all the time, I think, he, I think he knows a thing or two about what brings real happiness in this life. God is not out to get you and God does not want to keep you from being happy. Instead, he wants you to get happiness, but he wants you to get deep, rich, permeating happiness. The happiness that is only found in him. Not the empty, hollow, vapid happiness that the world offers. He wants us to get divine happiness. And then the Beatitudes, as we've been going through, uh, I guess the last two messages I've preached in uh, Matthew 5, 3 through 10, Jesus is inviting you and he's inviting me to enjoy genuine happiness and turning to him to have certain qualities formed in us for his glory. He is saying, here's what a divinely happy person looks like and why that person is divinely happy. So turn with me to Matthew chapter five. To verses, this morning we're going to be covering verses nine through 12. Matthew five, nine through 12 this morning. Last week, we, ex, uh, we explored the Beatitudes in verses six through eight. Blessed or divinely happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember? Uh, that is, those who hunger and thirst to be like Jesus. And divinely happy are the merciful. That is, those who compassionately seek to relieve the effects of sin and the consequences of sin in a suffering person's life. And we covered the last one from last week. Divinely happy are the pure in heart. The pure in heart. That is, those who have a heart that is united to serve God. This morning, we've come to the last two Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 9 through 12. Let's read it together. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall, see, or they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One reminder before we dive back into this passage is that these qualities are not qualities that we can produce in ourselves. We cannot, like as we've said the last couple of weeks, we cannot muster up the strength to produce these qualities. You know, if we just try hard enough, uh, they've got to be formed in us 
through Christ. Only the person who has been made right with God through Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, can be a peacemaker and be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. These things must be formed in us through Jesus Christ. It only comes through salvation in him. So let's go to the first beatitude that we're going to cover this morning. Blessed or divinely happy are the peacemakers. Blessed or divinely happy are the peacemakers. Now, concerning the quality of being a peacemaker, let me first say that this does not mean that you are a spiritual Wyatt Earp, okay? Uh, It does not mean that you go around laying down the law with your spiritual six-shooter and a a backhand slap across the face. That's not what we're talking about here. You're not a spiritual Wyatt Earp, first of all. Let's talk about what uh, being a peacemaker is not. It's not that, It's not what being a peacemaker is. Uh, There have been some strange interpretations of this beatitude as there have been with the previous beatitudes that we have looked at. Misconceptions. So we've got to be precise in interpreting what it means to be a peacemaker. First of all, let's explore what uh, peace actually is. Shall we? If we're going to talk about uh, being a peacemaker, then we've got to talk about what it means, uh, what, what peace actually means. All right? So let's explore that first. First of all, peace cannot be manufactured. Peace cannot be manufactured. Now, here's what I mean by that, okay? Uh, it means we can't stuff all the world leaders into a room, and a week later, they come out and there's peace. Okay? We get everybody from all the nations together, you know, let's put them in a room and they discuss things and they come out and there's world peace. Okay? That's not gonna happen. You know, and we, we can't drop a nuke on an enemy nation and have peace result. Okay, that's not gonna happen. And you know what? We can't have all the actors in Hollywood hold a benefit and peace results. <laughs> not gonna happen. Why? Because every single person on the face of this planet has a sinful heart. We all have sinful hearts. And this is what Jesus says about our hearts. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Matthew 15, 19. How will peace ensue with these hearts working together? With these evil hearts, out of which flow things like fornications, adulteries, and evil thoughts and murders, how will putting those hearts together um, achieve peace? It's amazing that people agree on anything in this world because we all have sinful, evil, selfish hearts. One pastor has said that when man pursues peace, the best it can offer is a truce. When man pursues peace by himself, in and of himself, the best that can come as a result is a truce. What is a truce? It's a temp- the, the, the temporary cessation of hostilities. The temporary ceasing of hostilities. Okay? Um, now, if you are a man, you know exactly what a truce is, don't you? 
okay? Think back to the playground with me just for a second. You know what a truce is, okay? If you had a best friend or if you had, you know, a brother, you know what a truce is because here's what would happen. You, uh, you were getting into some kind of fight over who knows what, a juice box or something, okay? And you, you get into a fight, there's, there's fists flying, there's headlocks, there's bear hugs and all that stuff. And all of a sudden you get to a place where you know, you, the other person can't do anything. They can't move and maneuver around you and get to a position where they can you know, get you pinned. And you, you can't do anything either. You, he's got you kind of in an entanglement there and you can't move, you can't get position on him. And so what do you do? You call a truce. Truth, truth, truth. And all of a sudden, you know, your hands go up like this. And you, you let your hands go up like this. But if you know about that kind of truce, you know it only lasts for a short amount of time, doesn't it? Because, you know, it'll be like, okay, okay. And you're gonna get, you'll, you'll get your breath. You, you'll kind of, you'll get your, your wind back. And the other person turns around and it's like, Upside the head when the person wasn't looking. The truce has now ended and conflict has begun again. It's only temporary. A truce is only temporary. That might mean, uh, a truce might mean temporary cessation from conflict. But, uh, you know, when that peace on the outside is taking place, there's planning and there's scheming going on in the mind of one of those two boys. What am I going to do next? How am I going to end this truce so I can get back on top, so I can win, okay? Get the best of that person or my friend or brother or whoever he may be. Man's peace is temporary, and it's only on the surface. It's only on the surface. A truce is temporary, and it's only on the surface. We can put certain laws in place and a certain foreign and domestic policies in place. But all that is really being done, uh, whenever we do that, all that's really being done is outward manipulation. Laws, policies, outward manipulation. And that's why uh, we cannot put our hope in government. We cannot put our hope in government. We cannot put our hope in any human institution to produce real peace because while they may be able to restrain conflict temporarily, it will return again. It will return again. In the same way or some other new way, the conflict will ensue again because the heart hasn't been changed. Because the heart has not been changed. Only God can change the heart. Only God can change the root problem, right? Because of sin, we rebelled against God's love and authority, and he rightfully burned with anger against us. But what did he do? He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to earth to die in our place. The sin was removed, and God made us new creatures in Jesus Christ, right? We just looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are new creatures in Christ. Behold, the old is gone. The new has come. And doing this, God, he has freed us from slavery to sin, and he gives us new desire and new will and new ability for him. He gives us a desire for righteousness, and he gives us a will for him and a will for righteousness. So when you've come to Christ for salvation, 
you've had a new relationship that has been made. You, you've got a new relationship that has been made between you and God. There was sin that existed between you and God. And Jesus paid for that sin and took it out of the way. So reconciliation is made between you and God when you believe in Christ. No longer as enemies, but as friends. Because Jesus dealt with the root problem. Now, now, although we don't do this perfectly, we will consider others as more important than ourselves in salvation. Now in salvation, we consider other people as more important than ourselves. We will love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We will pursue peace with all men so far as it depends on us, as Paul says. Now, many others may not be pursuing peace with us, but we are pursuing peace. Because of the, the root problem being dealt with, Christ taking the sin from between us and God, the conflict, he removed the conflict out of the way, he dealt with the, the sin problem, we, we do, we, we, we consider others as more important than ourselves. We, we serve people. We, we pray for those who persecute us. We, we, we love our enemies. They're, we are pursuing peace now. We don't do it perfectly, but now we are pursuing peace because the root problem was dealt with. Other people, you know, there may be plenty of unbelievers in this world. But say, you say, well, they're not pursuing peace with me, but you are pursuing peace because your heart has been changed. And that's where being a peacemaker really comes into play. Being a peacemaker means two things primarily, okay? Being a peacemaker means two things primarily. First, it means sharing the wonderful news of the gospel with people who don't know it in the hopes that they will believe it and have peace be made between them and God. So really, uh, being a peacemaker, really, it's, it's, it's a part of, um, it's, it's evangelism. It's not all that it is, but it, it is evangelism. Being a peacemaker is sharing the gospel of peace. It's the uh, ministry of reconciliation that Paul was talking about. How is peace going to exist between two sinful people with sinful, wicked hearts if their hearts have not been changed? So if you want peace to exist between you and an unbeliever, you seek to share with them the gospel of peace that Jesus Christ has come. He has died. He has taken care of the sin problem, the sin disease you have, so your heart can be made new. That's the only way that peace is going to happen between people is if those hearts have been changed, if they've been purified. A big part of peacemaking is evangelism. Have you ever thought of evangelism as being peacemaking before? Evangelism is peacemaking. Think about this. John says that the wrath of God remains on sinners. John 3, 36. The wrath of God remains on sinners. And Paul says that um, sinners are hostile toward God. Colossians 1, 21. The only way that that relationship will change is that they come to believe the life-altering message that Christ died for sinners. That is why we must be about gospel service and gospel conversation. <laughs> gospel service and gospel conversation. 
It's that ministry of reconciliation from 2 Corinthians 5. Do you have a ministry of reconciliation? Do I have a ministry of reconciliation? Are you pleading with unbelievers to be reconciled to God? What are you doing to contribute to God's plan of redeeming sinners in this world? What are you doing to contribute? Whatever we're contributing, we can always do more, can't we? We may be doing some things to contribute to this this, uh, ministry of reconciliation, this plan of redemption that God has, but we can always do more. And we know that Jesus is worth more, isn't he? So to that end, start by asking yourself this question, okay? To that end, start by asking yourself, how do I perceive my relationships with unbelievers? How do I perceive my relationships with unbelievers? Many times, we do nothing to point our unbelieving family members, coworkers, and friends to Jesus because it feels like there's peace between us already, Right? Because our relationships are just surface relationships. We don't get down into the heart issues. And so we think we're at peace. But we're not. Not if you believe what God says about the human heart and the the fact that your heart has been changed and their heart has not been changed. Things on the surface may seem calm. They may seem peaceful. But you have a completely different worldview than they do. You have different desires You try and base your decisions on God's word. They base their decisions on their feelings. And you have a completely different master than they do. Your master is Christ. Their master is sin. Therefore, you've got to look beyond the way things seem to the the way things really are between you and an unbeliever, according to God's word. When you you begin to see the... uh, the different worldview. You, when you see a, an unbeliever and you think, different worldview, different master, different desires, then you begin to see every encounter you have with this person as a strategic opportunity to show him mercy and to exhibit an attribute of God or to speak of the gospel, to reveal something about God, something about Christ to that person. You see the the encounters you have with these people as different. It's not just about, you know, uh, enjoying that person or laughing at a joke, or it's not just about, um, you know, keeping the the, uh, outward peace. It's not just about being cordial anymore. It's a strategic opportunity to show them Christ and tell them Christ. You know, you could show them an attribute of God. Or, you know, you may, you, maybe you're having a conversation about something like hobbies or entertainment. Well, in that conversation, you can reveal something about your heart that God has changed. Say, listen, you know, I, I didn't appreciate this or, you know, I really like this aspect of something. You reveal something about your heart and show your heart to be different than his heart. It could be little things in conversation. It could be big things like, you know, just showing them a, a huge um, act of mercy or loving kindness. It could be sharing the full gospel with them. But you, you look at the, the, uh, the relationships as different. You see each, uh, each encounter with them as an opportunity 
toward evangelism, toward them being made, uh, uh, brought to peace with God. But we've got to be careful in doing this, church. We've got to be careful that we do not pursue peace like this in an unpeaceful way, okay? Let's be careful that we do not pursue peace, peace between them and God in an unpeaceful way, okay? Be careful that you're not in attack mode whenever you're doing this, when it comes to pointing people to Jesus. Even if you know you'll probably never see a person again and you plan on sharing the entire gospel with them, do it in a respectful way honoring, gentle way. It made me think of an example. I had a seminary professor. Um, it, was just, it was a strange class, let me just say that. And um, this professor told us a story one time about how he was handing out tracts um, in, in, in front of some mall or something when he was a, he was a, a younger student or a, he was a, a young pastor. And he said that he, he offered a man a track. Uh, and what happened was the man rejected him. He said, I don't, I, no, I don't want one. And so he kept kind of pushing the tract on him. He said, well, take it. You know, it's, it you'll, you'll enjoy it. I, I, I'm sure that, that you, you need to hear this. And the guy started walking away. Well, he chased after the guy. Uh, and he, the, the, the man actually started to run, and he chased after the man. And I thought, uh, what? You know, I, the peace, pursuing peace in an unpeaceful way? Don't, do not emulate that kind of behavior. How can you be strategic though? Thinking along these lines, how can you be strategic in pursuing people with peace, uh, pursuing peace between yourself and that person and between that person and God through evangelism with every encounter that you have with that person? You show them Jesus and you tell them Jesus. It needs to be, both, uh, it needs to be both the whole, well, the whole I share Christ with my life thing, that's a cop out. I, I share Jesus or I evangelize with my life. Have you heard this before? Um, I, I don't tell the gospel, I, I show the gospel or I evangelize with my life. Meaning, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable speaking the truth of the gospel to anybody because it's very uh, confrontational and that's very uncomfortable for the other person and they, they feel bad about themselves and they feel guilt. So I don't do that, but I, I share the gospel with, with my actions. I share the gospel with my life. It's a cop-out. It, it cannot be that. It's got to be, yes, sharing the gospel or pointing people to Christ with your life, but it's also got to be actually sharing, coming to a point where you tell them the good news of Jesus Christ because they have to believe that truth in order to be saved. They can't just look at you and say, wow, there's good. I, I, he's different. Yes, I, I see that about him. He's, he's different than anybody I know. And all of a sudden, he's saved. It doesn't have, he's got to believe the gospel. So yes, show, point them to the gospel with your life, but also tell them the gospel. This is peacemaking. And John MacArthur says, you know, in terms of being strategic, John MacArthur says, when pursuing peace through the gospel, it is a good idea to find common ground with that person. Yes, we are drastically different, but that does not mean we do not share 
anything in common. We have commonalities in life. Even for the, the, the most heinous sinner, we have some things in common. And we can use those things to be strategic, to find common ground, to get some uh, conversation started, to build a relationship toward um, gospel conversation. Therefore, with this in mind, let me suggest an acronym. Okay, This is something simple that I ran across uh, um, when I was reading a, uh, a blog, a pastor's blog, something very simple that I think is going to help us be strategic in our encounters with unbelievers as we seek to be peacemakers with them, okay? So let me just give you this acronym, okay? It's FIRE, FIRE, F-I-R-E, FIRE, F-I-R-E. F, family, I, interests, R, religion, E, evangelism. Family, interests, religion, evangelism. Everyone has a family. Everyone has a family. So first, spend some time discussing their family and sharing a little bit about your family, you know? Then spend some time asking about the person's interests, okay? You say, well, they're, you know, they're a sinner. They're a worldly kind of person. I, I don't have any interests in common with them. Do you like food? Do you eat? You know, you could talk about what the person's favorite restaurants are. You know, we all have to eat. You know, you say, I like sandwiches too. Great. You know, let's talk about sandwiches. Interests. Just the next step is spend some time talking about the person's interests and talking about your interests, revealing yourself, revealing your heart that has been changed by God, paving the way toward the gospel. You know, um, it could be something like food or it could be something like the music that the person likes. Now, what are you doing when you start pursuing these kind of conversations? You're, you're communicating, I care about you. I'm asking about your family. I want to know about your interests. You know, I, it's not just about um, chalking up converts on the spiritual checkmark board for me. It's about, I, I, I care about you and I want what's best for you. So that's what you're communicating. You're communicating love and care for a person by asking these questions. And so you move uh, into religious background, you know, asking that, hey, you know, uh, did you go to church growing up? Or, you know, did you have a religious background? Which really opens the door to an opportunity to share the gospel because, you know, uh, oftentimes when you show an interest in somebody else's life, then they give you an opportunity to share about your life. You have to kind of earn an audience with them in that regard. So you ask them about their lives and show interest in them. And oftentimes it, it creates an opportunity for you to share about your life. Yeah, I do have a religious background, you know, and opens the door for a testimony. Share the gospel through your testimony. And then that um, hopefully, prayerfully will open the door to um, actually urging that person, reflecting the gospel back on them you know, you need to repent as well. I, I'm, no, I'm no better than you. God, God saved me. I didn't earn it, but the gift is free. And let me tell you about it. Family, interest, religion, evangelism. Just a simple acronym. I, I, I found it helpful. So maybe it'll be helpful for you because I think we've got to be strategic when we're thinking about our relationships with unbelievers. Through evangelism, we are pursuing peace between God and unbelievers and us and unbelievers because you know, if, if they're at peace with God and we're at peace with God, then we can have peace with each other. But 
inward, the true peace cannot exist if, uh, between two hearts that are opposed to one another. One's master is Christ, one's is sin. But we also have to pursue peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes this can be harder than pursuing peace with unbelievers. We've got to pursue peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's what Ephesians 4.3 says. Listen to this. Paul says in Ephesians 4.3 that we are to diligently preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. To diligently preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Church, we are united in Christ. We share bonds. We are linked to one another in Christ. But we still have sin in our hearts, don't we? We still have sin that exists. So we, we don't have perfect harmony between one another because we've still got that wretched man in us that Paul talks about. So we get into petty conflicts. We hold grudges. We stab each other in the back sometimes. So what can you do to pursue peace in the church with other believers? Let me give you some suggestions. First, we have to forgive. You've got to be forgivers. You've got to forgive and you've got to ask forgiveness and do it quickly. Don't let bitterness sink in. Don't let anger rise and wrath just seethe. Do it quickly. Be a forgiver. And whenever you've sinned against someone, ask forgiveness and do it in a timely manner. Quickly. Be quick to ask forgiveness of sins you've committed then uh, against other people and be quick to grant forgiveness when you're asked. And when you do this, what are you doing? You're, when you're granting forgiveness, you are lifting the burden of guilt off of that person who sinned against you. And when you ask forgiveness, not only are you dealing with the sin in your own heart, but you are helping the other person. You're helping the other person not respond to your sin sinfully. You go to them and you, you say, listen, you know, when, when I said that or I did that, I was wrong. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? When you do that and you do it quickly, you're, you're helping the other person because we tend to be a people who respond sinfully to sin. If someone sins against us and we want well, bitterness sets in, all right? Anger or, you know, a pride. And so when we go and ask forgiveness, we're extinguishing that. We're helping the person to think biblically and we are pursuing peace. Second, in order to pursue unity in the church, Agree on essential doctrines and respectfully discuss the non-essentials without dividing over them. Let me say that again. Agree on essential doctrines and respectfully discuss the non-essential doctrines without dividing over them, okay? Meaning, do not avoid fellowship with a brother or sister because of what they believe about the end times, okay? Lots of different perspectives there. Okay, and, and I, I don't think that's something we divide fellowship over. You know, I'm, I, you know, someone's pre-trip, someone's post-trip. You know, so, someone. You know, believe, there's so many th different things. I mean, we. You know how uh, have you ever been to, to Sonic and they they talk about how many different drink combinations there are? It's like you know, uh, like like thousands of drink combinations because of all of the different flavors you can add. Well, how many how many different eschato eschatological combinations are there? Because there's all these different things you can believe about the end times, and you you can have different ways. Of ordering that around. I mean, listen, 
don't avoid fellowship with somebody because of eschatology. Unless they say Christ isn't returning, okay? That's essential, okay? That's an essential one. We, we unite on the essentials. If they say, well, you know, Christ is not returning. No, that is, uh, that is not debatable. That it, we don't discuss that. That's truth, okay? You know, don't, don't divide fellowship over what somebody believes, you know, concerning the, the miraculous gifts. We have a lot of different views on the miraculous gifts in evangelical Christianity, so are, are you going to divide fellowship? Are you going to treat somebody like they're an unbeliever because of that doctrine? It's not essential. But the gospel, the, the doctrine that comes to the Trinity, the resurrection, the deity of Christ, you know, the virgin birth, these things, the essential doctrines of the gospel, well, let's unite on those, but we can discuss the other doctrines. You know, we can even debate them, you know, as long as we're not, you know, pridefully, uh, you know, exhibiting prideful anger. But let's... Let's agree on the essential doctrines and respectfully discuss the non-essentials without dividing over them. Third, be a servant. Simply put, be a servant. This church should be full of people imitating the servitude of Christ. We should be servants, every, every last one of us. I've said this before, but I got this from a friend uh, who said, you know, any room we walk into, we should consider ourselves the least important person in that room. And, and with that mentality, we can be servants. Now, if you're going to be a peacemaker, peacemaker there, there cannot be um, peace. Let me say it this way. If you're going to be a peacemaker, you know, pursuing peace between God and others and pursuing peace between you and others, there cannot be peace between you and sin. You, you understand what I'm saying? If you're going to be a peacemaker, you cannot pursue peace between you and sin. There cannot be peace between you and sin if you're going to be a peacemaker. Because if there, if there is peace between you and sin, whenever you go to pursue peace, you'll think, you know, how is this going to affect me? That'll be your first thought. How is this going to affect me? Instead of how will this affect the person for the glory of God? If I do this, if I pursue peace, how will this affect this person's relationship with God and this person's relationship with other people. If, if, there's, if there's peace between us and sin, then we're just going to think about ourselves and we, and we won't be peacemakers. We've got to pursue conflict between us and sin. We've got to make war against sin. We've got to put sin to death. If we're going to be peacemakers, there cannot be peace between us and sin. We'll only pursue peace when we say, no, I will not continue asking myself, how will this affect me? But rather, how will this affect others and bring glory to God? Now, in, in wrapping this point up, um, this beatitude, Jesus tells us why the peacemakers are happy. Because they shall be called sons of God. They shall be called sons of God. God is the great peacemaker, is he not? God is the great peacemaker who sent his son to be the necessary sacrifice for our sins so that we would no longer be his enemies, but instead his adopted children. So then, as we pursue peace, we are showing ourselves to be like the great peacemaker. We are showing ourselves to be sons 
of the great peacemaker. Therefore, to the degree that you pursue peace in the ways which we have discussed, you will prove yourselves to be children of God. For you, it will mean more assurance of salvation. I'm a child of God. The more you pursue peace, the more you give yourself assurance that you are a child of God, and the more that leads to divine happiness as you experience the promises of God for those who have been made right with him. Let's move on to our next, our next beatitude. Blessed or divinely happy are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed or divinely happy are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecution is a reality for everyone striving to live a righteous life. Persecution is a reality. Paul told Timothy, you've probably heard this before, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All desire, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, just know that when you live righteously, people will seek to cause you pain. Whether physically, emotion, emotionally, or, or mentally, they will seek to cause you pain when you live righteously. To live righteously is to live like Jesus. To live righteously is to live like Jesus lived, and we know what he experienced as a result of living righteously, right? We know that he was mocked. He was antagonized, insulted, rejected. False accusations were made against him, and he was murdered. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, Christ said. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. A slave is not greater than his master. You know, Christ said that in John 15, and right before that, he says this, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Isn't that good news? If you're being persecuted, then you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, then you are being like Christ, and yet you're being rejected and you're, you're being mocked like Christ. But that means that you're not of the world because if you were of the world, the world would love you. They wouldn't have any problem with you. But because the, they, they are angry at you and they're bitter at you, you are making, you're showing yourself to be of Christ. You're showing yourself to be his it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be persecuted. It's, it's a good thing when the world hates you because it means you are living like Jesus, your master. It means that you don't belong to the world. It means you belong to him. Now, when, we're, when we're discussing persecution, however, we've got to consider the reason for persecution the reason for persecution. This is extremely important because Jesus makes it clear that you are divinely happy when you are persecuted for what? The sake of righteousness. That is persecution for being like Jesus in how you live. This does not mean persecution for some political cause or persecution that is provoked 
Okay, it's persecution for living the way Jesus lived for the reason Jesus lived, the glory of his father. Let's make sure that it is the message of the gospel that offends and the obedience to God's word that offends instead of our pride and our aggressiveness. Let me say that again in case you didn't hear. Okay, um, let's make sure it's the gospel itself that offends and, you know, an obedient life that offends and not our pride and our aggressiveness. We do that sometimes. We don't need to be offensive to be obedient to Jesus. You know, we don't have to add offensiveness to the gospel. It's already offensive. It's already offensive. Peter says, you know, be prepared to, to uh, give a reason for the hope that is in you to anyone who asks, but do this with gentleness and, and respect. Let's make sure it's the message in an obedient life and not, the, not us trying to add um, aggressiveness or offensiveness to it. We, can, we live an obedient life. We obey the word of God. We speak the gospel. But you, have to be, you do not have to be rude have to provoke people. The gospel is what offends. This beatitude does not apply to people who burn down abortion clinics. That's not a persecution for the sake of righteousness. Whatever you know, punishment they receive. This beatitude does not apply to the person who is arrogant and holier than thou when he encounters unbelievers. This is what, this is what James Montgomery Boyce says his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, concerning this verse, it is not persecution today when Christians are snubbed for pushing tracks onto people who do not want them, insulting them in the midst of a religious argument, poking into their affairs when they are not invited and so on. Let's make sure it's the gospel and an obedient life that offends and not us thinking that we have to add offensiveness to it. Do we remember how Jesus responded to the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. You know, let's just turn there. Let's go to Mark chapter 10. Let's let's look there. Mark 10, 17 through 22. Mark 10, 17 through 22. I'm going to read here the story of the rich young ruler. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. After the young ruler proudly tells Jesus he has kept all of the commandments since he was young, Jesus felt love for him and then said something that exposed the true condition of his heart. He had love for that man and yet, he, even, even after he responds pridefully, that's when he does something to expose his sinful heart out of love. We tend to want to, uh, 
we, we tend to encourage persecution by um, the way we act, and the way we act sometimes is not like Christ, very unlike Christ at times. We, when we're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, living like Jesus, that is when we are divinely happy. This beatitude is referring to believers who humbly follow in the footsteps of their master, seeking to do things his way for his purposes. This beatitude is referring to, the, to believers who humbly follow in the footsteps of their master, seeking to do things his way for his purposes. I think of an illustration of somebody who is being persecuted, who was per- persecuted for the sake of righteousness. A pastor received a... Uh, a letter it says, several years ago, I received a letter from a woman who told of a friend who had decided to divorce her husband for no just cause. The friend was a professed Christian, but when she was confronted with the truth that what she was doing was scripturally wrong, she became defensive and hostile. And she was reminded of, as she was reminded of God's love and grace, of his power to mend whatever problems she and her husband were having, and of the Bible's standards for marriage and divorce, she replied with hostility. She replied that she did not believe the Bible was really God's word, but it was simply a collection of men's ideas about God that each person had to accept, reject, or interpret for himself. When her friend wanted to read some specific Bible verses to her, she refused to listen. She had made up her mind and would not give heed to scripture or to reason. With hate in her eyes, she accused the other woman of luring her into her house in order to ridicule and embarrass her, saying that she could not possibly love her by questioning her right to get a divorce. As she left, she slammed the door behind her. The woman who wrote the letter continued by saying, I love her, and it is with a heavy heart that I realize the extent of her rejection of Christ. Painful as this has been, I thank God. For the first time in my life, I know what it is to be separate from the world. This woman is being like Christ, living like Christ, and experiencing this division and this hatred and this rejection. She's being persecuted. She was persecuted for the sake of righteousness and she is blessed for that reason. You know, as, this, as in this story, persecution does not have to be physical. Jesus makes this clear in verse 11. Turn back with me to uh, Matthew 5. Persecution doesn't have to be physical. In verse 11, uh, Jesus refers to insults insults. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. False accusations, insults, that could be persecution too. And that's more like the person being like Christ, living like Christ in the United States whenever we choose to live a life like Christ. Insults here means to be abused with words. Okay? This type of persecution is usually done face-to-face, up close and personal, okay? Insults, uh, insults to your face. But uh, when Jesus talks about saying all kinds of evil against us falsely, 
This refers more to abusive words used behind our backs. Words that spread and grow more distorted in their deceitfulness. You may not be beaten in this life for Christ. You may not be burned in this life for Christ. But if you, if you experienced mockery, false accusations, verbal abuse, and other, other forms of persecution for righteousness sake, then you too have experienced persecution and you too will be happy knowing that the king of the kingdom of heaven has gone before you. It says, it says here that um, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You will be blessed knowing that you have ownership in that kingdom of heaven with Christ, which means that you get blessing now because the king of that kingdom of heaven resides within you. And you also get perfect blessing later as you will rule with that king on the new earth after he has fully established that kingdom. But it could be insults, false accusations. It could be um, you getting mocked, being discriminated against, not getting opportunities that other people are getting. When you are persecuted for being like Jesus, that is evidence that you are his. When you are being persecuted for being like him, that's evidence that you are his, and therefore you receive his blessing. You know, there aren't many things. I mean, just think with me for a second. There aren't many things in this life that we are willing to suffer for. And even fewer things we are willing to suffer for time and time and time again. Most of the world is trying to avoid suffering as much as possible, in fact. So when we, turn, when we return to righteousness, when we return to righteousness time and time and time again, even after suffering and being persecuted for it, it says something about what we love, doesn't it? We continue to live like Jesus. We continue to pursue righteousness. Even after we have suffered for it, it says something about our hearts. It says something about what we love. What does it say? It says our hearts cherish Jesus. Our hearts cherish Jesus. Our hearts don't cherish the other things that people cherish. Our hearts cherish Jesus when we're willing to return to him time and time again, even when we're suffering. Are you ever persecuted for being like Jesus? Good. Good. Ask yourself that question. Bear in mind that persecution does not have to be constant. It doesn't have to be every day kind of an occurrence. For some people it is in this world. For some Christians, they are experiencing constant everyday kind of persecution, but it doesn't have to be that. But have you ever experienced persecution? If you aren't ever persecuted for being like Jesus, I think it's a good reason to ask yourself how much you really love him. Or if you love him at all. Because your heart reveals what it loves. When you ask yourself, what am I willing to suffer for? It reveals what you love. 
If you're not willing to suffer for Jesus, if you're not willing to be persecuted for Jesus, what are you willing to be persecuted for? What are you willing to suffer for if not for Jesus? Because that is your God. That is what you love. If you're not willing to be persecuted for him, then he is not who you love. You love something or someone else that which you would suffer for or that person you would suffer for. So I don't think it's unreasonable if we aren't, if we've never been persecuted to ask ourselves, how much do I really love Christ? Because there's, I'm not pursuing him. I'm not, I'm not being like him like I should. Or maybe, maybe it's because I don't even know him. It's sobering. I, I say that to myself just as much as I'm saying it to you. What we are willing to suffer for shows what we love most in our hearts. Finally, I'm going to come to verse 12. Go with me at verse 12. Jesus gives us a command. A command. He's been telling us all this time and the Beatitudes uh, about these qualities, the qualities of a divinely happy person. But now he's commanding us. He says, rejoice and be glad. He's giving us commandment to rejoice. But you know, he doesn't just, he doesn't just give the command and end the sermon. You know, rejoice and be glad. See you guys, you've been great. Now, it's, it's, he gives us reason. Here's why you should rejoice and be glad, he says. Here's why. First, he gives us two reasons. He gives us two reasons why we should obey this commandment to rejoice and be glad. First, look with me. We should rejoice in the midst of our suffering for Jesus because our reward in heaven is great. Our reward in heaven is great. Our God is a good God. He's a good God, and he is a God that um, wants to bless us with divine happiness while we're in this sinful world, but he also promises us great reward in the future, in heaven. Jesus is using this as incentive for us to live a faithful life. He's saying, your reward in heaven is great. And he intends for this to be a motivation for us to live faithfully in the midst of persecution. Your reward in heaven is great. And a lot of people think that's, you know, we should not be motivated by reward. But Jesus is using this as motivation for us. And let's not forget that Jesus himself was motivated by reward. Jesus himself was motivated by joy. Remember Hebrews 12 too, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despising the shame. There was reward for him on the other side of his sacrifice. And there will be reward for us on the other side of our sacrifice for him. And so it's, it's not wrong to be motivated by um, a reward when Jesus is giving us that as a motivation. What about the second reason? Why should we rejoice in the midst of persecution for Jesus? The second reason he gives us is for, um, it's, he says that there have been people 
persecuted before us. Faithful people who've been persecuted before us. He says, uh, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Before Jesus' generation, it was the prophets who were persecuted in the same way that Christ is describing. Persecution for the sake of righteousness is not a new thing. It's not a new thing. Persecution for the sake of righteousness is not a new thing. Not only do we have tons of brothers and sisters in Christ who are experiencing persecution right now in the world. I mean, think of all the the hostile nations, the restricted nations when it comes to the gospel. How people are living in constant um, wonder. Is it today going to be today? Am I going to experience death today? Am I going to get burned today? People live in, uh, in that reality day to day. So we are, not only do we have people throughout the world presently who are suffering, but we've got thousands of years of history where people were being faithful to God and they were persecuted for it. We're not alone. We're not alone. We, we, we can't isolate ourselves. We tend to do that at times. You know, we, we suffer for, for Christ in some way and you feel alone, but you're not So many people are suffering now. So many people have suffered before and so many people will suffer in the future for Christ, for righteousness sake. I I look back in the past, I look in the Old Testament and I think about those who were persecuted. You think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think it's my favorite Old Testament story. I really do. I, to this day, I was, as a kid, I really loved it. And now I, I think I love it. Just listen to the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Even if he does not deliver us from the furnace, we will not bow. That kind of, that, that's, that's righteousness. That's living like Jesus. And they were thrown into the fire. Yes, they were, they were, they were delivered. Praise the Lord, it's such a wonderful story they were rejected and they were put in that, that furnace because they were pursuing righteousness. So we can rejoice. We're not alone. We can rejoice. There's a reward waiting for us as we pursue righteousness and are persecuted for it. Let me say this in, in conclusion. Our time is up. You know, there's no doubt that you and I will get to a place in our lives where we will forget where true happiness is found. We will. It may be this week when you wake up and you go through half your day pursuing peace and or pursuing happiness in something else. Some, some are looking to be filled up by empty pitchers, if you will. And maybe this week, maybe it's, it's next week, but we will come to a place where we forget for a time where true happiness is found. When this happens, you know right where to turn in the Bible. You know right where to flip. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Matthew 5, 3 through 12. To remind yourself, to speak truth to yourself and say, no, 
Happiness is found in pursuing righteousness. It's found in pursuing these qualities that you and I will get to a place in our lives where we will forget where true happiness is found. We will. It may be this week when you wake up and you go through half your day pursuing peace and or pursuing happiness in something else. Some some. Uh, looking to be filled up by empty pitchers, if you will. And maybe this week, maybe it's, it's next week, but we will come to a place where we forget for a time where true happiness is found. When this happens, you know right where to turn in the Bible. You know right where to flip. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Matthew 5, 3 through 12 to remind yourself, to speak truth to yourself and say, no, happiness is found in pursuing righteousness. It's found in pursuing qualities through Christ. Refresh your memory and go to God and plead with him to form these qualities in you for his glory and of course,